my opinion, one of the greatest hymns ever written. It's Be still my soul, the wind and waves still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Perfect. Perfect. I get the echo here at the church and I love to read it, love to read around the mound. I think this is maybe in the Friday issue and learn about just the history of Moundsville more and more of the valley. There was a quote on the front page about a week or so ago that I thought was really interesting. Uh, this is from Miguel de Cervantes who wrote Don Quixote and he says this, this was the quote. The brave man carves out his fortune and every man is the son of his own works. Remind me of a popular saying from Wayne Dyer, who was a motivational speaker and self-help author, and I think he was drawing from Miles Monroe when he said, Our lives are a sum total of the choices we have made. Every man is the son of his own works. Our lives are a sum total of the choices we have made. Each statement is about as hopeless and unhelpful and worthless as the other. You know where I first heard that statement? Our lives are the sum total of the choices we have made. In a Sunday school class at my church before I was married, on Galatians, our lives are the sum total of the choices we have made. The reason I heard that in Sunday school is because even Christians believe that sentence. Everyone believes this. It's an extremely human thing to believe. There is the prevailing belief in our culture all over our world, regardless of where you're from, that the human spirit is indomitable, that nothing is more important or valuable than free will, that man is capable of accomplishing whatever he sets his mind to. We are workers. We are laborers. That's what we became when we fell in the Garden of Eden. We became a people that sought and desired to be defined by what we do. This is what we became in the fall. We, we fell from, it was a descent, not an ascent, even though that was the attempt. We fell from the place of intended rest and joy dependent on the presence of God forever. We became a people defined by what they do. Workers, we became achievers. And we celebrate it now. So that when we hear sentences like, every man is the son of his own works, our lives are a sum total of the choices we have made, we say, yes, that's right. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Accomplish, achieve, do whatever you set your mind to. That can be very good in some things. But what it means is that you are what you do. That's what it means. Or you don't do. That's in our DNA. You are what you do. You are what you don't. And beloved, we carry that thinking into our perception of salvation by grace through faith alone. We think often that our salvation is finally the sum total of the choices we have made, the things that we have done, our works. That's always been the default position 
of human nature, which is why it was the very conviction driving the believers in Hebrews to drift away from the gospel. They were being tempted to believe that salvation could be secured through their obedience. So they needed a system of some kind in order to endure, to last till the end, something to measure and track their progress. And what better system to please God or to try to please God than the old covenant law? But the problem that we need Jesus to come and heal in us because we can't see it, we don't know it's a problem, and we wouldn't believe it was a problem if we did see it, is this idea we have that we are the son. We are the result of our works. The author of Hebrews issues a warning that is far too clear to avoid. He's telling us that if you, if we think like that, we will end up denying and rejecting altogether the sufficiency of Jesus and no one who rejects Jesus will have eternal life. Yes, it's absolutely true that Christians must endure to the end to be saved. What's not universally agreed upon, however, is how a person does that. We are not the sons of our works. If we are, we will perish. The math will never be good enough to gain salvation. We will never behave our way into a state where our good outweighs our bad. Because God isn't just measuring and counting deeds. It is me, it is my nature that makes me his enemy. And no amount of work can undo what I was born as. And to think that way is not only a gross underestimation of what we're capable of. It's a complete mockery and disregard for what it means that God is holy. As though he could be assuaged by just some good deeds and better things than others. Salvation is what happens when we rest completely in the sum total of Jesus' works for us. Salvation is gained and sustained when we believe completely in the sacrifice of Jesus for us as our high priest. We must liberate our souls from the idea that our salvation can ever be gained or secured by our works and instead live by faith and faith alone in the sufficiency of Jesus for us until we die or he returns for us. Let's pray. Father, as you will and as you know, have mercy on us. Lord, enable each and every single one of us, please, Father, me included, to believe your perfect word in your son, Jesus Christ. Help me preach to that end and no other. And I ask this in his name. Amen. Let me read verses 32 to 39 of Hebrews chapter 10. The end of this great chapter, Hebrews chapter 10. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you 
knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The author's conviction, which comes from the Holy Spirit, is that if these believers neglect the message of great salvation, if they don't sink their anchor all the way down into the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as a high priest, who has forgiven them of all their sins, made them perfect, cleansed their consciences, they are not going to do what they must do, endure to the end. That's what he's arguing for because, that's why there's but there in verse 32, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God in verse 31 unless Christ is holding you. But he is, believer. Christ is holding you. That's what he's been trying to convince them of the whole time. This last section in chapter 10 is the author's attempt again to give them a rationale for not abandoning this truth. He's arguing for them to agree with the power of the sufficiency of Jesus for them. He says, but recall the former days. In other words, remember something. Don't you all remember the beginning is what he's saying when you first came to believe these things that you were being persecuted. Do you remember that? How hard it was in the beginning? Previously, these believers had come under persecution for their faith. They, as he says, endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Believers were being thrown in prison for being believers. But something happened that caused those who had not been imprisoned to still be publicly ridiculed and abused for their faith. What did they do? Look at verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison. That's what they did. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you yourselves knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one. Three thoughts here from that verse. That verse is loaded. First of all, they had compassion on those in prison. In other words, they unashamedly identified with the prisoners that were in prison for their faith by going to help them. They provided food, water, etc. because... Prisons in the Roman Empire, for the most part, had none of those basic benefits. If it wasn't brought to you by somebody, by a family member or a friend, you were on your own. It was very easy to die in prison. But if you brought things, on the other hand, if you did bring things to these Christians to help them, you were going to out yourself as being associated with them, as being one of them. So they're thinking that at the time, they were probably thinking, obviously from the text, do we do it? Do we go help them or do we protect ourselves and keep ourselves from harm? Well, they chose to go help and identify themselves with their imprisoned brothers and sisters in Christ, joyfully accepting the plundering of their property, which they knew was going to happen. They didn't get their things taken then and plundered by the Romans with anger and bitterness and resentment in their heart. They accepted it with joy. Why? How? Since they knew That they had a better possession and an abiding one. What was the thinking that drove them to act? You can have our furniture. You can have our clothes. 
You can take our property and burn it. We have a better possession than the things we own here on the earth. And it's an abiding one. It will last forever. It won't be taken away. It can't be. So they looked at one another and said, you know what? Let's go. Let's just go help them and come. Whatever may, let's go feed and clothe and help our brothers and sisters in prison. Rome, you can have these things. You can take them. We're going to live forever with Jesus. You can't actually take anything from us. They knew they had that possession in Christ. They knew it. And look at what confidence in receiving what Christ had purchased for them caused them to do. Joyfully accept the plundering of their property by doing good works out of love for their brothers and sisters in prison, which is what he called them to earlier in chapter 10, to consider how to do that, to stir one another up to love and to do good works. Isn't that something? Knowing that Christ was everything for you and that your possession in him was eternal and secure drove them to act. Grace gets accused of making people lazy and encouraging them to sin. It seemed to have precisely the opposite effect in these believers, didn't it? Maybe God does know what he's doing. (laughs) Now, what's the basis here? What is the place of this argument in this section? The author is saying, do you all remember how you lived when you knew the things I've been telling you are true? Do you remember what you were like when you actually believed that the sacrifice of Jesus was sufficient to forgive you of all your sins and provide you with all of his righteousness so that you didn't have to work to earn it? You aren't like that anymore, he's saying to them. You used to know it. Now you doubt it. And it's killing the community. Right? That's why he's telling them, consider how to stir one another up to love and to do good works. You're dead to those things now. They don't happen. And the ironic thing is, their focus is good works. Like behavior. Get it together. Be disciplined. Get in the routine. But it's not happening. Right? That will never produce love and good works. It will produce narcissism and neurotic people who are so frantic about securing their own salvation, they don't have time to love and serve other people. The gospel is an amazing thing. A lack of focus on it kills the community. There's no love. He's saying to them that there are no good works. You're all obsessed with yourselves and trying to earn what Christ has already bought for you. Beloved, it is only when we know When we know that what Christ has promised to give to us is ours forever because of him, it's only then that we're free to love and to do good works. How I live is tied directly to the level of confidence I have in the word of Jesus Christ to deliver what he has promised to me through his sacrifice for me. They did something as radical as joyfully accepting the plundering of their property. That's how real it was to them. That's how much they genuinely believed. You know what? They could take everything from us. They could even kill us. What we get when we die, they can have everything. They can have everything. That's how real it was. Take what I have. I will live forever with Jesus. You can have it. We we, we don't live like that. 
we don't live like that because we don't have any confidence in Christ. We're trying to find confidence in ourselves. And it's killing us and killing our witness. We fight to keep what we have like what we have is all we're ever going to have. We are betraying our lack of faith in the gospel. Right? If, if, because if, if, what if Jesus won't deliver when it's all said and done? I better make the most of this here now. I better hang on to everything I can because I don't know what's going to happen. A lack of faith in Jesus not only threatens us, but it kills the community that Jesus means to build that will show the world it belongs to him through its love that would even joyfully accept the plundering of its own property for the sake of serving others. What Jesus called us to, loving one another as God in Christ has loved us, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us, that only is possible when we believe the gospel. So the focus isn't on the result. The focus has to be on the source or the result will never happen. Nobody commanded them to do that. Nobody said, if you really love Jesus, you would go visit those people. That's not why they went in the text. That is not why they went. They went because they knew what they had heard was true. They believed it, so they went. They heard it so much, apparently, that they actually believed it. It was what they knew that moved them to act. Therefore, in verse 35, here's the reason for the argument. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. That is Christian confidence. And it's not confidence in myself to get what Jesus has promised me by working for it. Christian confidence is Jesus Christ is going to bring me all the way home. I know it. Through him, I am totally forgiven. Through him, I am totally righteous. I will inherit the eternal life he has promised to all who believe in him. That is the confidence that glorifies God and ends up resulting in service to others to such an extent that we would lose everything we own to identify with our family. 3, 6, 3.14, 4.16, 10.19. He's been arguing for this confidence the entire letter. That's what the gospel does. right? You focus on anything else, you lose confidence. You focus on Christ and what he has done, you gain it exponentially. What Jesus has done gives us permission to be confident that we will attain what he has promised to us because he has secured it for us. It takes all the focus off of the self. It's probably why we reject it. We have every right through Jesus Christ, because of Jesus Christ, to feel confident enough to walk right into the throne room of God himself and know he will meet us with the smile of his steadfast love and his grace. That confidence, the text says, has a great reward. That is a better possession and an abiding one. In verse 34, that's what Jesus gives to those who just believe in him and take him at his word. That's why Hebrews starts out with God saying, I have spoken my final authoritative word in my son. Listen to him. 
Doesn't that sound nice? A better possession and an abiding one? Who can promise that? I mean, that sounds all right. Don't threaten me with that. A better possession and an abiding one. One that lasts, that won't ever fade, that can't be taken away. If we really believe that was true, do you know how dangerous we would be in this world? They might actually try to kill us, beloved, if we actually believe this thing. Which is another way of saying they might actually send us home. My goodness, if we believed this. Some of us just grew up in it. We we never even questioned it or had to fight it. We just ease our way into it. These things come by faith, not by assimilation or osmosis. You'd end up sounding like Paul, and the world would not... You see, if, if we're just fighting for another power position, like we do... In our country. If we're just fighting for the power. And the ability to hold sway by a majority. That smells like the world. There's nothing appealing about that. Which is why they won't listen to us. Because we don't have a different message. Our message is you gain power this way. Jesus' message is you lose everything. To be with me. You don't need power. You don't need position. You don't need authority. The gospel is a virus implanted into the world. It doesn't need power. It doesn't need government approval. It doesn't need a constitution to thrive. It needs nothing because it has Christ. We should sound like Paul. Paul, we're going to beat you to death. I count the sufferings of this present life not worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed. Swing away. We're going to take everything from you, Paul. I count it all lost for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, anyway. You can take nothing from me. Paul, we're we're going to kill you for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Do it. I want that. I want that. There's a place the soul can go, apparently, Where the truth of Jesus is so strong and so real that nothing else has any say. What's your goal for our church, Tony? That. That we be like that. That's what these struggling believers used to be like. Their lives used to be the result of what they knew, not what they did or didn't do or were trying to do. That suffocated them. The exhortation here is, you know that Christ has secured everything God has promised to you. So don't throw away your confidence. Don't trade it in for the lack of it by working to earn it. Don't throw it away. You see what he's saying? Don't throw that away. So in other words, the author is equating turning back to the law in order to be righteous as equivalent to throwing away the confidence that we have by believing only in Christ to secure everything for us. It's an amazing text. Don't abandon your faith in Jesus. 
This has been the same thing he's been saying since the very beginning. That's really the whole letter summed up in one sentence. Jesus is better than everything, than any and every other possible means of salvation and eternal life. So don't abandon your faith in him. Don't throw away your confidence in him, not even in order to follow the law. Verse 36. For, here's why you don't want to throw away your confidence. You have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Endurance, lasting until the end when we either die or Christ returns to us, for us. What I mean is lasting to the end, believing is not the result of discipline. It's not the result or the sum of hard work. It's not the sum total of our effort and dedication. It is exclusively, Hebrews reveals, the result of confidence in who Jesus is and in what Jesus alone has accomplished on our behalf. Endurance is the fruit of one thing, confidence in Jesus Christ. We need endurance because it's God's will that we endure to the end in order to receive what is promised. Well, how then do you have confidence that you'll get there if you have to endure in order to make it, right? How, how do you have confidence about it before you arrive at it? Faith. Faith in Jesus alone. That's why the author brings in or quotes here Habakkuk 2, 3 to 4 in verses 37 and 38 because it's always been true that Jesus was going to return one day to claim his people, judge the living and the dead, bring the new heavens and the new earth. Habakkuk in his time had a complaint against God asking questions. He was promised an answer by God to his questions. It wasn't the answer that he wanted, but he was promised an answer. And the only thing God was telling him that he had to hang on to was the promise that God would answer and act. The righteous, which we should realize by now means those made perfect by the sacrifice of Jesus. That's who's righteous. Those who believe in what Jesus has done They live by faith until he does return as God has promised that he will. The essence of that faith, by the way, is addressed all throughout chapter 11. But in Habakkuk, God contrasts, very interesting here, God contrasts the one who has faith with the one who is puffed up. Now that's interesting. Meaning the opposite of faith here is to trust in yourself to see the promise received. Faith is what the author is describing here, not works. He's modifying the word confidence with the word faith. Now he's zeroing in on exactly what he's talking about. That's what confidence is. It isn't delusions of grandeur. It isn't arrogance. It isn't self-assurance. It's the belief that God will give what he has promised to all those who believe that Jesus is a perfect, sufficient, and eternal Savior. Faith is not forgetting things in this world. Faith is for obtaining the better and abiding possession of another world. 
You don't joyfully accept the plundering of your property if you have faith in God to get you more property. So the warning comes again. It's been the same warning all throughout the letter. And if he, here, he says it by quoting Habakkuk. And if he shrinks back, that is, stops believing fully in the sufficiency of Jesus, again, that's the true opposite of faith. It's not mere unbelief. It's belief in the self instead of Christ here. If one stops believing then in the sufficiency of Jesus, God says, then my soul has no pleasure in him. Again, we cannot get to God if we don't believe in Jesus. This is the warning of verse 26 being repeated. It's a warning not to trade in faith for anything else as the reason for our confidence and the assurance of our salvation. But in verse 39, we are not, he identifies himself with them, the author, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What preserves the human soul in this world? Faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Nothing else. This confident assertion that his audience is not beyond hope, right? So they haven't shrunk back and been destroyed. They not drifted too far. His belief that they will see the light, it follows the same pattern that was revealed in the middle of chapter six. The author does not believe the gospel will finally prove unfruitful in this crowd. Here, neither do I in this crowd. When they, there was a time when they believed it was so true, they knew it was true, that they lost everything for what Christ had promised them. See, they've gotten it all back, apparently. They've gotten it all back. And the fact that their hearts are not the same reveals that they've stopped believing what made them go the first time. They used to believe that it was so true they lost everything for it. That's the confidence that comes from knowing that just Jesus Christ is all you and I will ever need. The author's argument this morning, beloved, is remember when you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you knew how much better and abiding your possession was with Christ in heaven? Employ that same hope now as you struggle with where to find your assurance. Joyfully accept the plundering of your flesh for confidence since you yourselves know how sufficient the sacrifice of Christ is to cover your sins and make you righteous forever. That's the call of the text to us, to you, And to me this morning, beloved, each and every single one of us, no exceptions, no matter who you are or how long you've known him. Or maybe you don't know him at all. Not yet. The message is the same. Joyfully accept the plundering of our flesh as the means of our salvation. 
since we know how sufficient the sacrifice of Jesus is for us. That's why he's given us all this truth about him and why he's insisted on it for all these chapters. That's why joyfully accept the plundering of your flesh's desire to find confidence and assurance through your works and effort. We only ever find confidence and assurance by having faith in the supremacy of Jesus for us. So we have no choice but to double down on the gospel when we gather. I don't want anything else to have a voice when we gather but Christ crucified. How else are we going to love one another in the way that we've been called to? How else are we going to serve one another through good works? How else are we going to have the what we need to obey the Great Commission? And most of all, how are we going to endure if we don't keep hearing the message that makes us what we are? Rich Mullins, before he died, wrote that great song, Creed, speaking of the truths of the faith. I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God, not the invention of any man. We are made into something by Christ. We don't become something by works. There's no other motivation that will lead to the glory of God from our lives and the ultimate good of his people or the world. There's no other motivation that can pull that off. Jesus for us in the message of great salvation is the only place we'll find the confidence necessary to make us endure. All of you have to endure. Each and every single one of you has to be there when we get to the other side. Every single one of you. There are people I know in this room, there are people I don't. Every face that I can see right now. You have to be there. Please be there. Believe this message. It is the truth. And not because I say it is. My word is nothing. This is true because Jesus said it is true. And the soul is preserved for the end by faith, not by works. Plunder your flesh. What I mean is, let the grace of God tear it apart and let it go. Let it go. Just let it go. You're not going to earn your way in. I love what Zachary Cole says here. If we are in heaven, it will be because Christ died for us, not because we lived for him. No ifs, ands, or buts, no qualifications. That's the truth. Jesus is the good news this morning. I am not. We are not. Jesus is the good news. The good news is not if you try really hard, you, you can achieve what I have and get to heaven like me. That's not good news. It's only good news if you're a worker. Right? If you're a bum filled with sin like me, that message means nothing. 
And when your conscience this morning tells you you don't have the level of faith that that text is talking about, don't run away. Don't run away. Don't abandon what is even just the tiniest sliver of faith, if that's all that's left. Our faith is like shifting sand, beloved. We don't stand on faith. We stand on grace, having faith. Pray, beloved. Draw near to him. Tell him. Tell him that you can't do this. Tell him. He doesn't break bruised reeds. He doesn't quench smoldering wicks. Tell him, I can't do this. Tell him. He loves you. Sinful dads, human dads, when your little child comes to you, I can't do this, will you help me? Do you put your hand in their face and shove them down for being a punk and a wimp? If you do, you're an abuser and you need help. No. We, we don't, you don't do that. How much more do you think God the Father will be merciful when you come to Him with the Bible saying, I can't do this. Forgive as you have forgiven me? No way. Help me. I believe. Help my unbelief. That's in the Bible. Say that. Say that. We must liberate our souls from this idea that our salvation can ever be gained or secured by our works and instead live by faith in the sufficiency of Jesus for us until we die or he comes to get us. I'll take either one. Just get me home. Believer, when all is said and done, we will reap what Jesus has sown. We will never be the sons of our works. Therefore, all who believe will be sons of God in Christ Jesus. This is what is available now. Now. For any and all of you who call upon him. Right now. Don't reject him. Don't be unbelieving. Believe Repent of your sins, the bad you've done, and the good you try to use as payment. Repent of all of it. Plunder your flesh. Silence its demanding voice to contribute something. And embrace a voice that speaks the eternal word of grace over you who will believe. And give all away for faith in Jesus Christ alone. We're going to pray. The front is going to be open. I'll be there. If you need for any reason to come and pray, to join our church, you've believed on Jesus, now you want to be baptized, any of these things, please come if you'd like to. Let me pray and we'll sing. Father, we praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. Open our hearts, Father, to receive him. To believe on him, give us faith to endure. Grant us the confidence that has a great reward. And the reward is 
you. You're not a means to something other than yourself. So, Father, watch over our hearts. I ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I just want to detain you a few more minutes. Could you please be seated? I'd like to ask Sharon Cone to come. Just We'd like to take a few moments to honor our veterans. I'm going to ask Sharon to come, and I'll be back when she's finished to close us in prayer. All right. Thank you, everyone. Since Veterans Day is tomorrow, um, you know that the quilters have worked with uh, making stockings and so forth. And and I just I'm going to read what we've compiled here to say so that I don't just get wandering off on something. Okay, uh, we wanted to bring you up to date regarding the money left from the stocking donations over the last 16 years. You were very generous by no donating money so that we could buy items for the 100 stockings that were sent to our military overseas. It took anywhere from $2,500 to $2,700 every year to fill these stockings, and we thank you for all that you've done. And just last month, we were able to um, divide and distribute the money to four different veteran groups. The first picture is of Jeremy Harrison. He's receiving a check for the Helping Heroes that's located on Jefferson Avenue here in town, for those of you who may not know. Uh, they house veterans, and they counsel them with whatever problems they have so that they can try to get them to get back into the workforce or to just live a, a better life. And um, they help find uh, jobs for veterans. And the uh, second picture then, uh, receiving a check, is uh, Dave Shonian. He's on the left. He represents the Northern Panhandle Veteran Council, which organizes our five Panhandle counties. And then on the right is Rush Schlenker, and he heads up 
what is called uh, Healing Waters. And this is a group that takes disabled veterans on fishing trips and teaches them how to fly fish. I thought, wonderful. They, they do this very, uh, really often when the weather is good enough. And the last picture that we have is uh, Gary Ryder receiving a check toward getting a monument erected for the Gold Star families. We're giving their all. Um, also, we have 15 stockings left from last year that we thought we were going to still continue this, but it has, since both see retired, it's not been picked up by anyone. So we have 15 stockings that we're going to fill and, and give them to the um, organization so that they can distribute it to somebody that might not have anybody to give them a good Christmas and uh, help them out at this time. And uh, this is all local-based groups helping our local veterans. And uh, one last thing I want to share is uh, these thank yous that we've received. And um, we did explain to each and every one of them as to where the money came and why it came to them and uh, how we felt about distributing it back to our military veterans. Uh, this one is, uh, we, the members of the Northern Panhandle Veterans Council, thank you for your generous contribution to help continue our goal helping the veterans in the five counties we cover. And uh, that's signed by all the ones that were, I guess, at the meeting or something. And then we got the uh, this other one that said, um, thank you so much for your recent donation to Helping Heroes. Getting community support from people like you is vital to the success of our program. Our veteran families will, co will continue to be served because of people like you. So thanks and God bless the Helping Heroes. And uh, I just, uh, we as the Sunshine Quilters, we couldn't have achieved what all we did for the military and, and our veterans over the years without your help. I want you to know that truthfully. Um, thank you so much. And we feel that it was an honor to, to work on this project and, and get it completed. And uh, we thank all the people that helped us, each and every one of you, and especially the veterans that have served to keep our country safe. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sharon, very much. Just, just before we dismiss here, if you are a veteran, served in any branch of the military, would you please stand if you're here with us this morning? If we have someone here as well. Thank you all so much. And, and now, this, please, please remain standing. At this time, I know the Memorial Day is coming in, in May, but at this time, when we all stand to pray, let's remember veterans that never had the chance to be honored because they lost their lives. 
uh, let's remember them as well. So let's stand together for all of them. Let's pray and you'll be dismissed. Our Father, we are the beneficiaries of your grace, your kindness, your faithfulness, your provision at all times. So, Father, we praise you for all the ways that you have taken care of us and watched over us all throughout our lives, all throughout our history. Lord, may you be exalted. May your name be renowned by those you have helped. We ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.